For all my children of the light, born in the sinning, but steady striving to do right. My people are warriors, all we know is to fight. Pray, they see God and everything I write. Yeah. Hey, everybody, I'm so happy to be here. Welcome to this edition of On One with Angela Rye. And it's a super special edition because I'm also filling in for my good sister friend, Alicia Garza, for Lady Don't Take No. So, Lady Don't Take No listeners, it is I, Angela Rye, guest hosting for your girl, Alicia Garza. And today I have an extremely special guest. He is someone who has schooled me going and coming on all things police reform, equity, abolition, defunding, all the things, especially when there's that involved. I'm talking about none other than the CEO and co-founder of the Center for Policing Equity, Dr. Philip Atiba Goff. Thank you and welcome. Hey, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? (laughs) So um, I'm going to jump in. We normally do something called a rapid round. And on Mm -hmm. rapid round, uh, you know, we try to have a little fun. You know, right now it is uh, such a heavy time in our community. And so we could use a little levity because the podcast is going to be heavy. You're going to teach us. And we also have to get into some issues that, you know, we care very deeply about in our community. Um, And it's not always a great state of affairs right now, but we certainly want to get to better. And I know we'll do that with you on our side. So let's jump into rapid round. First things first. Well, let me ask you this first. Did you really used to rap? Now, nah, hold up now. Now, nah, hold, <laughs> hold up now. I was, told, <laughs> I was told that nobody had done a full Google search on me before this all showed up. Um, because there's no way to demonstrate that the person who had locks down to his behind is the same person as me. Um, <laughs> so all of that, that photo evidence, uh, I rebuke it. Um, yes, I was in uh, a hip-hop ensemble when I was in graduate school. I mostly was on the ones and twos. I played keyboard and I played bass, and I Ooh. sang. I moaned in the background, and I wrote spoken word, which they put over beats, which I guess you could call rhyming. Okay, well, tell me what your name was when you were said rapper, though. Now, see... You were asking questions you know the answer to, and you don't need to do all this. I'm um, so but, curious. Um, so they called me the LSP, which stood for the light-skinned philosopher. <laughs> that wasn't no, even no, a no. rapid round. I was just like, is this for real? I have to ask him. <laughs> no, it's okay. Let me get my range off. We're going to get the Vaseline. We're going to get in it. Let's go. <laughs> and then here's the thing. Since you were a rapper, at least over a beat, and you know that this month is National Poetry Month, do you want to bless it us is. with any bars right quick it or not? I don't know why you would ask for that. I am not really. A, it was bad poetry. <laughs> um, so my, my, my life before this, my, my legit life before being an academic, being a professional nerd, is that I was a professional musician, not just an MC, um, and in fact, not really an MC, but I was a singer. Um, so I, really. I ran the, the gospel choir um, in college. Oh. And I, I, like, I, I legit could sing a little bit and I could play bass a little bit. Um, so well, what about a little yes. lift every voice? You want to give us a little lift every voice? I mean, but so, so I don't know why you want to you get deep into, into any you of that. You know what? Else. I actually can give you a, um, it may not be scientific, but it is a psychological reason for why. My good friend, Dr. Philip Atiba Goff, you are well read. And so perhaps you have read. Resma Minikim's My Grandmother's Hands. Have you read this book? My goodness. Okay, sure. Yeah, let's go. Let's go there. Yes. So, so if we're really going to do this, then I feel like the place to go is to the Sorrow Songs. Because we're going to end up talking about abolition, which means we're going to talk about Du Bois. And you know, Du Bois, in 1899, he writes Philadelphia Negro. He was so proud. He had done all this stuff, came to my city. And said, yeah, this is what we're going to get into. And the University of Pennsylvania said, bump all that noise. That's too black for us. So in 1903, after losing a child, he says, 
Bump it. I, I can curse here, right? I, I'm allowed to curse? Yes, yes. He said, fuck it. Um, and he said, so every single chapter, he started with a sorrow song at the top as an epigraph, mm. right? So if we wanted to say, I, I, I don't feel no waste time. Said, I've come too far from where I started from. Nobody told me that the road would be easy. I don't believe he brought me this far to leave me. You want to start Hey, there? now here's the thing. I was asking you before my headphones went out and Siri decided that this was a podcast she should interrupt because she racist. I was going to say that Resma Menachem's book, he talks about us humming and rocking as a people and how that heals trauma in our body. So I was ready to go psychological on you, sir, psychologist to uh, prove my point and to get you to sing a song, but I didn't have to do that. So, Resma, thank you for always being my lifeline, even when I don't have to call on you. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's get into this. Philip Atiba Golf. Let's do a rapid round. So, best Philly cheesesteaks? Oh, Jim's, South Street, no question. Okay. What do you miss most about Philly? Ooh, fireflies in August. For sure. I love that. Favorite Roots Crew song. Oh, did you say Lottie Dottie? Who likes to party like Slick Rick the Ruler? I'm cooler than an ice brick. Got sold like those Afro picks with the black fist and leave a crowd dripping like John the Baptist did. Okay, light-skinned philosopher. I'm just saying, like, like, Black Thought is the dude. He was the original. If he's not in your top five, then your top five is He's in my top five. He's absolutely in my top five. Tell him I'm still waiting on my master class where he tells me how to rhyme like this, by the way. (laughs) Um, Self-care activity right now. What you got? Ooh. Reading Sonia Sanchez out loud. Ooh. Mm -hmm. I love that. I'm going to do that. Uh, Reform, defund, abolish. Pick your word. (sighs) Reconstruction. How about that? How about that? What about um, first place you want to go post-quarantine? Ooh, Longwood Gardens, outside of Philly. Old DuPont home. They got all kinds of horticultural stuff. My mama used to take me. We the only black people who ever went there. I'm going to go with my mama at the end of this. That's true. Ah, that is so perfect. Grade for Biden-Harris after their first 100 days. What is it? Ooh, what class have they taken? Are they taking uh, are they taking this on a curve based on the on the kid who failed out of the last one? Because they get an A plus for that, right? Are they are they are they being graded based on the long arc of U.S. history? I say that's still an A minus. Are they being graded in terms of what they're giving to black folks and to the immigrant communities? We might be in the B range. Then we might be in the B range. Um, Any place where you feel like they're failing? Right now, they got an incomplete with how they're managing the border. Mm. They have an incomplete with how they're managing, continuing to manage um, the disappearance of Native women and girls. Wow. So two of our most distressed communities that don't get the highlights because they're, they're not on film because they're literally being disappeared. Um, they get an incomplete because I'm hoping they're going to do better. And I know they got folks within the administration that want to do better. Wow. I appreciate that. And I hear you. So this one is going to transition us into what we're talking about today. One word. What did you feel when you heard the verdicts read in the Chauvin case? One word. Mm-hmm. Mercy. Mm. As in have mercy. Wow. Okay. 
So in all that's going on, of course, since George Floyd was killed uh, last May, May 25th, 2020, mm-hmm. Philip, there is so much going on. Your work is always so important. Are you feeling more pressure to get it right, given all that's going on, given the fact that the day the verdict was read, we learned about Micaiah Bryant. And right before that, we learned about Dante Wright. And right after Micaiah Bryant, we learned about Anthony Brown. I'm sorry, Andrew Brown. Andrew Brown, right. But you're thinking about that because we got the word back on Anthony Thompson, yes. right? Who was happening at the same time. Remember, police on average County. kill, exactly. The police on average kill three people a day. Three people a day, disproportionately black and brown, but disproportionately black. So there will be another one between the time that we record this and the time that it airs. And I think it's airing, what, tomorrow? Friday. Right. Yeah. So there, there will be another and another and another. So between now and Friday, between six and nine people. Yeah. Um, I don't feel any more pressure to get it right because I, I, I grew up with a black woman from North Carolina as my mama. Uh, so she gave me all the pressure I needed from jump. Um, yeah. You know, when she was five years old, they integrated uh, an area of Greensboro, North Carolina. And all the family came over and she thought it was just to come to get together. But they had shotguns because they lit a cross on the lawn and they had to shoot buckshot to get folks out of the lawn, make sure that everybody stays safe. And the cross was the only thing that burned. There is nothing I will experience in my life that is the parallel to that. And my mother got two master's degrees growing up in that, in that world um, with segregated water fountains, crosses burning, and sent two boys to college. So I, I feel the same pressure all day, every day. What is different since this summer is the opportunity and the speed with which we can move. Wow. Are we moving fast enough when you consider you know, what's happening on the state level uh, you know, there are a ton of anti-protest bills now, but not enough when you see qualified immunity. Qualified immunity has been challenged in some states. Some states, they're trying to ensure there's even more qualified immunity protection for law enforcement officers, as you know. And then, I, you know, what I think is super interesting is this debate around whether or not the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act goes too far in the Senate. This is the second time it's passed the House, right? And it's and they're still saying it's too much. It's too much too soon. We don't need all of this in the Senate. Um, what do you think has to happen? Philip, how many more people have to die? Yeah, so the question of are we going fast enough is always no. Right. We're never going fast enough. Um, we could have constructed a country that made good on all the things that got written down and sounded pretty, and we chose not to do that, right? There's always... Mm-hmm two versions of this country. There's the one that got written down and there's the one that people were living. There's the one that said we hold these truths to be self-evident and there's the one that where that passage is written by someone who owned other humans and raped children. Which one we gonna be? Right. But we're always both. We're always the people telling the myth about ourselves and the people living the lie to that myth. So we could just live a life that's consistent with the values we say that we have and that would be fast enough. That would be equity. That would be something like freedom and justice. But how, how fast is it reasonable to expect that we could be moving, given all the stuff going on? I got to say, the, th- the stuff that's getting headlines is the stuff that feels national. 140 police reform bills, three states saying they've abolished um, qualified immunity. Let's come back to that because folks are going to try and take that word abolish and make it mean anything they want to make it mean. Okay. Because they, they, they didn't abolish it. They, they just reformed it and, and incrementally at that. Still, not terrible, not, not abolition. And then we got, what, 34 laws 
uh, coming forward to um, restrict protest and call up to three people in Florida a riot. And if, if, it's, if they're rioting, you can run them over, right? Good thing you can also stand your ground. They're making the laws so that it's like survival of the fittest. They want Jurassic Park with humans, right? right. They, they, it's, it's ridiculous. Or they want to give Charlottesville bigots protections, right? Like this oh, yeah. is the, there's basically legislating and codifying what happened in Charlottesville, which is insane. You know, the good people on both sides. Yeah, exactly. The good people on both sides, the murderers and the murdered, right? Like everybody is okay. But I want us to get that though this feels like it's because it's, it's a big problem. It feels like it has to handle happen on a national level. So we're looking for national level leadership, but it's mostly going to happen on the local and the state level. When you look at the local state level and, and the state level, you're actually going to see some things that should give you some hope. Okay. So in Denver, they've taken cops out of schools. They've replaced law enforcement with mental health responders. And the chief came out and said it was absolute madness we were ever doing it the other way, right? Mm -hmm. In Berkeley, they said no more low-level traffic enforcement with a badge and a gun. We're going to send out folks uh, just with who are unarmed to, to issue a ticket. We're going to just mail something to your house. And in Ithaca, New York, they said we don't want a police department anymore. Mm-hmm. So Cuomo comes out and says, everybody's got to have a plan for how we're going to do public safety. And the folks in Ithaca, New York and Tompkins County said, no more police department. We're going to have a department of community solutions and public safety, civilian led, majority unarmed and no armed response to nonviolent calls for help. That is some different stuff than what we've done. And it's not all the way maybe to where folks want to go. I wouldn't call that abolition. Right. Again, we can go back to what we going to define the word, but that is really different than what's grabbing most of the national headlines because it's local. The local stuff should give us reason to hope. And that's where all the action is really going to be. I love that. You you started with Denver and Philip, that is where some of your work with the Center for Policing Equity began. Can you talk about why you founded the center, how you founded it and where you all are today? You know, what's most important to you all from a priority standpoint? Yeah. So when I went to graduate school, I'm a, I'm a telling myself with my age. Um, so I went to graduate school in 1999 and in 1999, Amadou Diallo was shot 41 times um, by NYPD for holding up what they said was a gun, but was clearly his wallet. Now the specifics of the case are not really what's important. What's important is that was an opportunity for social psychologists like me to show up and say, Hey, you know what? There's a science that can explain this. And we use that science to say, all of y'all who thought you were okay, who thought you didn't have, you know, y'all hear about the racist bone. Right? You know, I didn't have that racist bone in my body. We were able to say, actually, implicit bias is this robust thing and it reflects the world. So if you don't have it, either means you've not been paying attention, you've been only hanging out with black folks. Because if you've been hanging out in an integrated world, it's in you. That was a really important problem to solve because people were saying, policing, there's why would we talk about policing? Mass incarceration, sure, but the police are fine. So we were able to convince people, you got to be paying attention to policing and there's real atrocities going on. That's what's going on in 1999. It's a different problem than today. Mm-hmm. So at the center, we started it. It actually uh, formally got uh, incorporated in 2008, but we were doing that work from 2005 on to basically show up to police departments and say, if you really cared about how often you're killing people, you could measure that and hold yourself accountable to that instead of just measuring crime and holding yourself accountable to crime. And we did that in collaboration with communities to give communities more power. Yeah. We're in a different stage now. We're solving racism in a different pattern. 
And so the thing I want to point out, part of what, what I, I'm excited to talk to you about today, I swear I'm going to stop talking to be professorial, I swear. No, it's good. The problem that we were solving when we were marching and we were getting dressed up and we were saying, hey, don't fight back, watch them see themselves and how brutally they treat us. Those are different problems than the problems we were solving in 1999, which is a different set of problems than the problems we're trying to solve right now. Different problems, different tactics, all the same struggle. We need yeah. to get that. Otherwise, we're going to end up throwing out so, some stuff that we still need from our ancestors. Yeah. So speaking of that, stuff that we still need from our ancestors, this problem, the way that it manifests itself may be different, but the root is the same. And so, you know, going back to the rapid round question where I said, you know, is it reform? Is it abolish? Is it, is it defund? And your answer was reconstruct. You know, there's an era, of course, after slavery called Reconstruction. Is Reconstruction possible, Philip, when the very root of this thing has always been to terrorize Black people, which, of course, you talk about in your new Asking the Right Questions About Race and Policing, this piece in uh, Science Mag uh, right here. And I do want to get to that as well. But how likely is a legitimate Reconstruction process when the root is so poisonous? So, of course, it's wildly unlikely, but so was the original Reconstruction. Yeah. 1867 to 1877, right? We have massive accumulation of wealth compared to where it was before in black communities. Still the largest representation of black folks in elected governance in the United States. How do you get that so quickly after emancipation? There were slaves and then there were black folks in Congress. How the heck did that happen? And just as unlikely as that is, how unlikely is Brown versus Board and the, the Montgomery bus boycott and the Voting Rights Act? Everything that we do in this country is unlikely. It doesn't mean that we can't struggle to make it happen. So if we think That's about right. the civil rights movement as a reconstruction movement, it's the second reconstruction. Well, we need a third. We probably going to need a fourth and a fifth. But the point is to get us closer to our behaviors, aligning to the mythologies we tell about ourselves, the lies that we tell about ourselves, trying to make those things true. Mm -hmm. When you say a third reconstruction, if it could be exactly as you see it for policing, for equity in the criminal justice system, for safer communities, because you even talk about public safety and the way that we define it in this piece. What does a third reconstruction look like to you in an ideal world? So first, it starts before any portions of the criminal legal system. Mm -hmm. So at the Center for Policing Equity, we got four principles that guide our work today. The first one just starts with white supremacy is bad, which means we should we should work to resist and dismantle it. You have to and say- why it is it so hard for people to understand? Yeah, because it's hard. People say, well, white supremacy, what even? That's the people who just wear sheets, like That's in a right. costume involved. And so it has to be that. It's like, no, not really. Not right. really. It's, it's way bigger than that. Yeah. Um, but so that's the first one. The second one is every community is safer when they have the resources so they don't have to call out in crisis in the first place. No real mm -hmm. estate agent has ever landed a deal saying, and you'll get to call 911 more often. Isn't that great? Nobody wants to live there. So that means you need to invest in communities before they have to call out in crisis. The third is when you have a crisis, you better send the right resources, which means if my crisis is I don't have housing, send a roof and four walls. Don't send a badge and a gun. Mm. And the fourth, which is the hardest to understand and therefore in some ways the most important, the things we do to change the systems we have should not impede the creation of the systems we need. Yeah. That means experts like me showing up 
shouldn't be able to say, well, these are the things you need. And then the mayor or the governor says, well, the experts have spoken. Forget about what the people have to say. Mm-hmm. Nah, it shouldn't work like that. What we've got right now is not enough. And if we're going to build something better, the things we do to change what we've got can't impede the systems we need. That's what a reconstruction looks like. Part of me feels like reform and even reconstruction in the way that you've defined it will be challenging unless people are able like just to frankly let some shit go. And by shit, I mean like the historical baggage that we carry with us every single day in our physical bodies. I know that part of the tenants, even in um, the task force on 21st century policing that Barack Obama set up that, of course, you are a part of, a big tenant of that work was around training. You can't really train out trauma. Like, that's something that has Mm -hmm. to be, you know, um, healed out. And so what part, you know, of this reconstruction process do you believe belongs to healing? Yeah, so I, I have mixed feelings about the word healing in this context. Because okay, on the one okay. hand, like, the, like you're absolutely right. Communities have trauma. Um, and so that's what I mean. We got to give money. I mean, let me be clear. When I say resources, I don't just mean services and forms. I mean mm-hmm. money. We need mm-hmm. to give money to the communities that don't have money because when you've got money, you don't do things that you do when you don't have money. That's right. So there is trauma in those communities, and we need to provide space for that. We did it in Ithaca when they were like, we're not interested in doing anything because every other time we've tried to do something on policing, y'all mess it up. Mm-hmm. But when we talk about healing in broader terms, it suggests that there is a wholeness that we're trying to return to. And that's just, that's a mythology. We were never whole. We were, we were founded on stolen labor, on stolen land. And so what we're trying to do is forge for the first time something that looks like a true democracy. So like it's both, yes, we got to do it for communities and let's not pretend we're trying to heal the nation. We're trying to forge a nation worthy of the words of its foundation. Yeah, but worthy worthy of the words of its foundation that it's never lived up to and worthy of the words of its foundation, but not attach it to the, the drafters, the founders. Like that's the hard part. That's the, the mind challenge for me anyway. It's like, Oh, we're trying to heal out stuff that people brought with them into this land they stole, right? It's like, mm-hmm. we're, and by, when I'm talking about trauma, I'm not just talking about Black people's trauma. Oh, yeah. Right? It's like, you know, even in Resma's book, he talks about people who work on the police force, their trauma on top of, he calls it white body supremacy, on top of the trauma that we carry, you know, on top of our individual experiences, that thing that results in a fast beating heart when a cop car just comes up behind us. Right. Anyway, I, I'm like, I'm fascinated by it because I just wonder how far we can go with systems changing from a legal standpoint, but the humans not shifting and adjusting and getting whole, not whole back. Not now. Nah, I'm not talking about a build back better theme. I'm talking about wholeness. <laughs> they've never realized no shade. To, no shade to Joe. I just hated that. I hated it so much. I hated it. I'm sorry. What is build back better? Anyway, I'm back. No, no, mm-hmm. no I, I get you. And, and I think one of the things I, I hope folks understand in this is, yeah, white supremacy is ugly and it's brutal for everybody. Right. Even the white folks who are getting the good things from white supremacy, it does awful things in terms of the lies it tells to them about who they are, what they should be able to expect. But you can't heal from trauma while it's ongoing. Yeah, that's the thing. What do we do? How do we get whole when the thing, like, it's like the wound comes right back. Yeah, no, like you you try to heal from a beating, they still beating you. 
Yeah. Right? Like, that's what we're living in in the United States. We're yes. trying to— So, so my, my mixed feelings about the words healing is partially the beating started at the beginning, and the beatings have not stopped. Yes. So the first thing to do—and this is what— I, all progress comes in cycles. It comes in ebbs and flows. Mm-hmm. Okay. We in a flow right now. The window is open. We making some demands and we getting some things. That's great. It will ebb. Don't ever get it twisted. There will be a period where the window closes and we will not be at the center of attention. Y- y'all remember how much progress we were making in 2016 and then democracy ended. And yeah. all of a sudden we went from the number one topic to the number seven topic. Right? They're just trying to make sure the nuclear codes didn't get accidentally tripped because someone was eating Cheetos and angry at Fox News. Right. Right. So it will come again. Mm-hmm. I want it to stop. Make the beatings stop. Because yes. you can't deal with trauma until the beatings have stopped. You know, uh, Sadia Hartman talks about what is the word for mourning when the thing has not passed. Mm-hmm. And we're in the midst of that in the pandemic as well. So I get that we'd like to move to a place where healing is possible. But you can't heal from the beating that is ongoing. And white supremacy is the beating that don't stop, won't stop, can't stop. It's like Diddy dancing. <laughs> Shout out to Puff. Um, so let me go to your article. You say in here that folks wonder whether the problem can ever be fixed. Um, we just, of course, talked about what needs to be a third reconstruction. And you also mentioned in this, this scientific magazine, the importance of engaging around a conversation around um, defunding the police. And I think it's so important from an academic standpoint to have this conversation in earnest because people will automatically shut down. Speaking of that trauma, speaking of that fear, knowing how they've been able to hold on to white supremacy for so long. It's through the function of law enforcement. It's through the function function of of um. I meant to, maybe I meant to say fuck shit because that's what I just said. Function <laughs> of a vigilante justice, returning enslaved people back to to their masters where they did not belong. Right? Like, how do we have this conversation in a real way? We keep saying reimagination, but we're saying it as a fluffy word, not with intention. And I think that we kind of have to engage intentionally. Like, I'm I'm saying I'm basically giving the clip notes on this whole article, but I want it, I want you to talk about what public safety should look like and why we don't have to have that conversation from the frame of how many police officers do we have on the street with yep. guns and tasers. It's such a good point. Yeah. So, so the the piece, uh, I like. So, I, my 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 day job is usually CEO of Center for Policing Equity, but I do this Yale professor stuff on the side, right? Yeah. Um, and that piece was me trying to say to the entire discipline, if y'all don't start talking about if and when on policing yeah. instead of how much, right? Um, then you're going to lose anything like scientific legitimacy because the, the, the wisdom of communities is way larger than the wisdom of academics right now on this stuff, right? Yeah. No one is safer because a gun showed up. Yeah. Right? Like, we already know that. No one is safer because there was the threat that your life or your liberty could be removed from you by someone you don't know. Hold up, hold up. Let me do this because this is this is a, a thing that's really been in my heart since she said it yesterday. I have a woman who works for me. She's my senior VP of science, mm-hmm. right? She's a, so she's a PhD, very well-trained, but she also used to be a Baltimore public school teacher. And she started talking about the, the Micaiah Bryant killing. I started to tear up. This is not a woman who cries publicly. She teared up. She said, I was in a school where there was a, a boy who had behavioral issues. He picked up a circular saw and started walking around the school with it. 
And no one had the thought, maybe we have to kill him. There's things you don't do when you love somebody. And how is it that we pay people this much money to not love these children? I was done. I was done. Wow. That's that's what I want us to be able to talk about when we're talking about public safety is a group of adults who are in charge, who love the vulnerable folks. And if you don't leave. Yeah. Right. If you don't leave, it may not be the job for you. I had a conversation, Philip, with um, my cousin who is a now retired Houston police officer. And I get his permission to share this. Hopefully I don't get in trouble. But I asked him, you know, right after George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery were taken from us, I said, cousin, what are well, give me three things that police officers do that you don't think you should have to. And he said, help moms make their kids go to school, respond to a homelessness issue, and um, not responding to a mental health crisis. And the thing that is fascinating to me in this, especially when we talk about conversations that happen about policy on the Hill, is so often there's no engagement, not with the union. I'm not talking about the union, not with, you know, some police reform expert, but there's just to your point around community and how communities need to be centered in this conversation because they are the truest experts. Talk to the officers about the stuff they get called to do that they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. They don't want that responsibility. When people call 911, they're calling with an urgent matter, not because they want to kill off whomever they're threatened by or whatever they're worried about. You know, it, and it's... um. It's, it's such an interesting point that people often just don't even talk to these folks. Like, what do they not want to do? I promise you there are some things that were added to their other duties as a sign part of their job description that they don't want to do. And they get training in it. And we say, oh, well, we should just train them to be better. Who do you know? Be real with me. You know lots of really brilliant people. Who do you know who can be an expert at using a weapon, at being an EMT, at mental health, at substance abuse, at child welfare, all of those jobs all the time on a 10-hour shift. Who do you know that could do all that, right? I I think I might know one, maybe two people, but they're like Rhodes Scholars, right? Nobel Prize winners, right? I don't know that they could take the physical course at all. Or like a black grandmother, maybe a black grandmother, right? (laughs) Like I said, Nobel Prize winners, (laughs) Rhodes Scholars, black grandmother, that's what that word means, right? So I'm trying to say... (laughs) Like, like they never wanted to be in this for 20 yeah. some odd years since I've been doing this. They never wanted to be there. They're like, get us out. Keep yeah. our budgets the same, but get us out. Right. Where we disagree mostly with police executives, not the union, police executives, and with black um, law enforcement organizations and women law enforcement organizations, where black communities mostly disagree is on the budget, is on how big it should be and how that, how that should roll. Nobody thinks it's a good idea to have law enforcement as the primary first responders to a mental health crisis. Because who was considering suicide was like, please send somebody with a gun. How'd that sound? And in Denver, when they cut it, when they said, no, law enforcement will not go to a mental health call, like, I think it was like three times more calls to 911. Because they're like, oh, if if I'm not going to get a badge and a gun, I need this help. How much are we underserving our communities? Because they know all you could get is an ambulance, a fire truck, or a police car. We could give communities more options when they call 911. There's nothing stopping us from doing it. And that's what it means to reimagine 
like you said, with intention. Let's start doing some doing and some redesigning with our imagination. Yes. And Philip, here's the thing. There's a couple of points. I'm also going back to this article where you say there is no consensus on the influence of training on officer behavior. Yes. So often so much of what we see legislated is what? Training. You have there's been no consensus on what the influence of officer demographics is on officer behavior. What do we hear most? We need to diversify police forces, right? We need we need to diversify. So we are focusing often on the things that are um, kind of the fluffiest and they feel the easiest and they feel the least controversial. But we're not focusing on the fact that black people are still dying. When you consider all of that, what would you say if, you know, members of Congress, particularly on the Senate side, are watching this podcast? What would you tell them they need to focus on, even if it's uncomfortable and even if it means they may not get reelected to the Senate, but it helps black people live? What do you tell them? Give poor communities money. That's the number one thing. If folks had the resources, they would do different things. Now, with that said, we have an armed force that we mostly use to punish folks for making choices when all we've given them is terrible options. So we should also rethink, this is where the reimagined stuff really matters, right? Is our psychology around this, the logic that, well, we've got, what choice do we have but to punish them? You could give them the resources. But the number one best thing we could ever do for black folks in the police and the criminal justice system is reparations. Number one best thing. There's no question to me that if the the labor of black life had been compensated appropriately throughout the history of this country, we would be in a fundamentally different place. Let me push back on you because I wonder, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have reparations and I'm not saying we shouldn't (laughs) give black people money. So let me be clear about that. I support both of those things. But how does that get rid of the inherent fear that predominantly white officers have of the black body. And we also have all met, I know you say in this piece that black officers use force 35% less than white officers. We have all met that one police officer from Boys in the Hood, the one black officer from Boys in the Hood though too. So let's be clear about that. That is not Mm -hmm. an anecdotal evidence. It is a fact. We have all met him. Um, (laughs) But I want to say, you know, would money have solved Dante Wright's issue where he's pulled over for air fresheners in his in his rearview mirror. I understand that he owed a fine based on a misdemeanor. But would it have solved the issue in that moment where, you know, she says she accidentally shot him? Would it have solved Micaiah Bryant? We know that um, she was in foster care, but we don't know the reasons why. Does it automatically solve um, fear of black bodies when you're in uniform just because black folks all of a sudden have money? And if they do, why are rich black folks still racially profiled? So I want to be clear. The way that this works is not that you have law enforcement showing up and before they show up, you sprinkle a little cash on top of the situation, right? Like that, that's for sure not going to do nothing. You're making it rain at a police involved shooting is, is a terrible way to solve that problem. But let's go to Dante Wright. So he got pulled over for expired tags. The county was slow in managing that. But does he feel like he needs to get out of there in the same way? Does he have that same level of fear if he doesn't have warrants? And the warrants are for unpaid elements. So he got the money, they get paid. Maybe he is not feeling afraid and maybe it doesn't escalate that way. If they got money, maybe they're managing the tags earlier so you don't have to worry about the backlog. All right, so for Micaiah Bryant, we don't know the situation and it's 
I don't want to speculate too deep, but for lots of kids in foster care, if their parents had had the resources, they could have gotten help earlier. They wouldn't have need to work the second job. They wouldn't have need to leave them alone in the home. But then the incident happened that got them taken out of the home. But so, so, so there's lots of, of foster kids where if their parents had the resources, then they're not in foster care in the first place. Or if their foster parents had the resources, right, then they've got the ability to have a better peer network, to manage the bullying that apparently she had been complaining about differently. All of these incidents happened in the moment that we see, but they happened because of all of the things that we didn't see. And having resources is a major lever to make that better. It doesn't solve everything. Right. Rich folks are still going to get profiled, but I tell you, they will stop profiling black folks so long as the communities that have black folks in them are not also besotted with concentrated disadvantage. Mm. If we did not stuff in poverty, if we did not stuff in uh, food deserts, if we did not stuff in the redlining and the defunded schools and the defunded hospitals, if we didn't stuff that all into one corner, then we wouldn't be afraid of the people that we stuffed in there with them. Yeah. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. It would not solve everything, but please let's try. Because I, yes. I, in my heart, I know, and from the data, I know it would solve a whole heck of a lot. Wow. So speaking of data, um, I want to know from you, uh, Philip, what are, what are things that folks can do to support your work um, at the Center for Policing Equity? And how can we best use this data to make the points that you're making around giving us money? I also want to get these officers something. They need some background checks. They need some um, Jason Johnson's been talking about decertification processes. They need some other accountability systems, too, so that they don't feel like they could just kill without any regard for black life and brown life. I'm thinking of Adam Toledo. What are ways that we can best support and also use this data that you regularly produce that's so good and helpful? Yeah, so um, any community can now reach directly out to the Center for Policing Equity. We're happy to have conversations with y'all. Um, we work with community and with elected and sometimes with law enforcement still um, about how do we make all of this stuff better. So you can go, there's a contact form right on policingequity.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Policing Equity. Follow me, Dr. Phil Goff on, on Twitter. I don't, I don't mess with the Facebook um, and, and Policing Equity has got an Instagram, but you don't want to see this pictures of this all the time. Um, so that's a way to keep abreast of it. But the best way to support what we do is for you to do it. And what I mean by that is there is no community that has more than three black folks in it that doesn't have black folks wrestling with the problems of that community. Yeah. So there are local people, not just national organizations, local folks, local activists and organizers. If you don't agree with them, great. Engage them in conversation. Make them more like, like what you need to do. When you got uh, law enforcement having town hall meetings, do you go? Do you know? Mm. When is the union contract up? Where do you put pressure in on that? Get engaged and most importantly strap in because it's not like we're going to get everything this time which means there will be a next time and if we haven't done the emotional labor to be prepared for the next one then it's just going to feel like too much and we tune out and we shut down and we leave the work to somebody else and that's why black women are so tired mm. because black women have been lifting this up on their backs for generations and if you want to be engaged and you're not right now, the one best thing to do is get to know who is already doing this locally and figure out how you can contribute to them. That is so good. When you consider the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, again, knowing that it has passed the House twice, knowing that it is before the Senate for the second time, and they've yet to do anything with it, 
Uh, I know the bill is not perfect, but it's what we have. What would you say to senators who are up for reelection about the importance of passing this bill? And if you have something to say to, you know, a senator who should be considering an amendment to this bill, what, what do you say to them? Yeah, so the the Justice and Policing Act is important. There's actually things in there that can move the needle. Um, people are talking about qualified immunity. Um, qualified immunity is a relatively small portion of all the cases. So if we if we got rid of qualified immunity, even if we abolished it, right, in the states that are looking at it, we're still looking at like, you know, 25, like a quarter to a third of all the cases would it apply to. Not nothing, but it's a relatively smaller part. The biggest part of that is the 242 standard. That is the, the standard that allows for civil rights folks to come in and say, you were reckless. Right now, the standard is, is willful, means intentional. Reduce it to reckless. Now, the civil rights community can get engaged in this. The civil rights depart- division within DOJ could get engaged in it. All of that is good. I am more excited, though, about bills like ones that folks like Katie Porter are going to put forward, saying here is money for mental health instead of police. Bills that come forward saying, uh, like, like the $5 billion that might be in the appropriations uh, uh, bill, like that going to gun violence reduction, primarily to violence interrupters like Erica Ford, who runs Life Camp, or Pastor Mike, Michael McBride out in Oakland. The things that are giving money to the folks who have local expertise, give me all of that directly into my veins, please, because that's the stuff that makes what we do possible. I cannot tell you enough. There's no national organization that can help us get free without liberated and empowered local folks doing their thing. So if you're not supporting the local folks, all you're doing is you're making the national organizations less capable of what we could possibly do. Do you, would your suggestion then be to the proposal, uh, President Biden's proposal around the budget and the intervention stuff around violence and community? Do you want to see an amendment that ties some of the DOJ grant dollars to community organizations that are doing this work. I know they have some of that in justice and policing, but maybe there needs to be an, an additional look at that. Yeah, I mean, so the more money, I mean, you're hearing it over and over, the more money, money you're giving to the yeah. folks. Money, come on, that's what's up. The other way to do this is separate from anything that would be legislation, because, you know, legislation's yeah. hard these days. It's hard in these legislative streets in D.C. Yes. Um, but there is this process. So consent decrees are when the government comes in and they say, this is jacked up. You have to do what we say. There's a lesser known option, which is called collaborative reform. It was set up as a consent decree light, and it was heavily used under the Obama administration, right? It gives money to law enforcement to give them better training and better other sets of things, but it's not subject to congressional approval. Mm-hmm. So what that means is you got money, you spend it how you want. There's no reason collaborative reform should not allow for processes like what Ithaca went through, mm-hmm. where they said, nope, no police department no more. That is not, that doesn't come cheap. That was a lot of labor, a lot of expertise. That's a lot more than just holding hands, singing Kumbaya. That yeah. is real, real infrastructure that's needed to do that. And if we want to scale communities that want to do really different, but by really different, I mean drop the body count and not just sort of some incremental change here and there. We need to support them. And we don't know exactly how it's going. I'm a scientist. I'm going to tell you, I don't know how it's going to look. So we have to support experimentation that is responsible. What the folks did in Ithaca, that is responsible experimentation. Let's get some more of that. And collaborative reform can be a lever that can make that happen. I love it. Dr. Philip Atiba Goff, my good friend, my teacher, my favorite light-skinned philosopher. (laughs) 
Okay. You will okay. never live that down. I literally might nope. get you a T-shirt that says that for your birthday. But just so y'all know, he is about that life as a philosopher, a psychologist, and a scientist who comes with all the data all the time. And he does it because he cares about us. He wants us to survive. He wants us to thrive. And to get that what? Money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Out of these bills and everywhere we can get them. So let's go experiment, y'all. Let's go we reconstruct this system that has never truly served us. And we, can, we know we can do that with the help of the CEO for the Center for Policing Equity and this Black man that teaches us and schools <laughs> us all the time in word, in song, and in deed, and in data. Thank you. <laughs> Y'all, it is Lady Don't Take No Beats on One with Angela Rye. Thank you, Dr. Goff. Who are my children of the light? Striving to do right, my people are warriors. All we know is the fight, praying to seek God and everything I like. Yeah, who are my children?